Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan and Novartis. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome back to New Retina Radio, Back to Practice, Telemedicine in the COVID-19 Era. And today is September 11th, and I'm joined by three amazing international guests. Uh, we have Francesco Basquia, who is the Director of Ophthalmology, uh, Director of the Ophthalmology Clinic and School of Specialization in Ophthalmology at the University of Sassari, Italy. We have David Steele, consultant ophthalmologist and vitreoretinal surgeon at the Sunderland Eye Infirmary and honorary professor of retinal surgery at the Institute of Genetic Medicine at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom. And Ramin Tadioni, professor of ophthalmology at the University of Paris in Paris, France. Just to give a brief update, Currently worldwide, we have 28.1 million cases of COVID-19 that are known diagnosis, 909,000 deaths. In Italy, we have 283,000 cases with 35,000 deaths. The United Kingdom have 360,000 cases of COVID with 42,000 deaths. In France, we have 392,000 cases, 31,000 deaths. And in the United States, 6.3 million cases with not 191,000 deaths. With that, I'd like to welcome in my guests. Thank you all for joining us here for uh, Back to Practice, uh, New Retina Radio, focusing really on telemedicine. And let's start out with David Steele in the U UK. David, what's the status update on COVID-19 in the United Kingdom? Well, um, so we're just starting to get a, a you know, significant recurrence, um, John, unfortunately. So the numbers have crept up, I think, around about 20 per 100,000 cases, something like that, in, in a lot of areas. And local hotspots, so parts of the UK are going down into quite intense lockdown. But there's also just nationally, there's just been announced that we're res they're restricting social interactions. So you're not, not allowed to group meet in groups of more than six with more than two households. So it's, they're, they're trying to sort of nip the recurrence in the bud. Um, clinically, we're carrying on as we've done before, which I'm sure we'll get on to discussing. So, so David, do you attribute this recurrence to anything? Are, patient, are people easing off on some of the restrictions and therefore we're seeing recurrence? Is it a back to school issue or is it a multitude of factors? Well, I don't, I mean, schools have just gone back in the UK from last week, but actually I don't think it's that. I think it's a relaxation of attitudes people, you know, holidays, people are, are, you know, were desperate to start seeing each other and, you know, pubs, um, pubs were reopening in some forms, restaurants where there was a massive drive to get back people to restaurants. I think the increasing, you know, mixing has just has led to it. I, I, it's a very difficult situation because a lot of people are very upset, but equally well, you know, nobody wants to go back to sort of figures of March, April time. Yeah. No, absolutely. Ramin, I just read an article that there are now 10,000 new cases a day in France, uh, that this is a, an all-time record for France. Are you feeling that type of recurrence? Yes, we, we do. Actually, the number of cases depend also on number of testers, and now more and more institutions ask people doing tests. So maybe this is not so reliable to compare to what it was before, but the number of patients coming to the hospital and um, with bad situation in particular, that that's really uh, an important factor. And we see again in the hospital more and more people. So actually, yes, there is an increase. Clearly there is an increase. We hope that it will not be as bad as before because still people have some masks, people are, are careful. But as David explained, uh, people also go to a restaurant, young people interact. 
they go to pubs, bar, and cafes. So yes, there is some increase. And Francesco, Italy was really kind of the epicenter at the beginning of this and was hit incredibly hard, but it seems like Italy is doing an amazing job now. What are the status of things in Italy? At present, we have uh, on average uh, 1,500 cases per day, new cases per day. Of course, as Ramin said, not all of them uh, are hospitalized. Uh, and uh, I think that part of the uh, so-called second wave uh, of uh, uh, COVID cases uh, is due also to the increased number of uh, tests that are done uh, today. But obviously, as has been said, there is the need for people to interact. Uh, I mean, restriction created the really a, a drive towards uh, interaction and to starting again, possibly a new life. And also, uh, as you are all aware, Italy is a vacation spot. Mm. So there was a lot uh, of uh, tourists uh, uh, coming uh, into the southern region, uh, to the islands, uh, people from mainly from uh, uh, Italy, mainland Italy but also from abroad. So obviously there was a mix up of uh, uh, cases of uh, people that uh, drove to this new, as we call the second wave of cases. But uh, as has been said, uh, uh, so far the situation is not as uh, terrible as it was uh, uh, during March and April. When really in the northern uh, area, there was a, a nightmare situation. It really was. Francesco, is your clinic back up to normal now? Is it 50% of normal? How busy are you currently? Well, uh, it, it depends. Uh, uh, as for the retina part, uh, we never uh, stopped uh, injecting patients. We never stopped uh, seeing a new patient. Of course, there was a, a, a restriction in the access uh, to our uh, clinics, but still we, uh, at least I try to keep it open uh, and active. So we injected uh, all uh, the patients with the CNVs. Uh, we turned uh, the uh, drug uh, uh, choice towards steroids for diabetic cases. Uh, so we try to manage uh, according to the uh, restricted access to the situation. So. As for the retina side, I would say we are 90% of uh, the, usual, uh, uh, the usual activity. As for the other side, say all the cornea part, uh, uh, also glaucoma, unfortunately, and uh, other subspecialty, uh, and cataract surgery, of course, uh, the uh, activity at, uh, at present is about 30% of normal. Wow, so still very, very effective. And is that on the patient side, not wanting to come to the hospital, or is that more on the hospital side, limiting patient access? It's, uh, at present, it's mainly on the hospital side. Uh, we, have, of course, we uh, provide access to the theater, to all the patients to uh, add their examination uh, done beforehand. Uh, so we don't want really to, uh, to, 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 all our, our theater with, with a, a possible case. Uh, so there is a restriction on that side, but also we try to keep the uh, clinics open for really, uh, I wouldn't say urgent, but really for patient needing uh, assistance at present. 
uh, initially and uh, at present uh, marginally uh, there was also a patient uh, mindset uh, that really they were very cautious in, especially old patient uh, were really cautious in approaching our clinics. Okay, great. David, what about you? What is the update on things with your, your clinic now? Yeah, so we're running at around about 70 to 80% capacity based on social distancing. So we, I mean, as Francesco said, we, we didn't really, um, from a retinal surgical point of view, I, didn't, I never really stopped because um, a lot of work was urgent, but, and we, we kept on injecting people. We had a, a large number of people who didn't come, of course, because they were self-isolating and didn't want didn't to come to the hospital, but we offered the service um, for things which were urgent and, 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 and time critical. Um, and then about uh, two months ago now, we started doing cataract surgery at about 60% capacity, and then we're up to, and there's a lot of pressure on us, um, a lot of pressure on the health service to start you know, eating into this enormous number of patients who have had their treatments delayed. Um, and so um, we, I know we've got a backlog of around about a thousand cataract patients, for example, um, which we're, we're, we're eating into, but um, other places have got much bigger, much bigger numbers. Um, uh, we're actually, interestingly, we're less people because there's less people coming because we've got a small, mm. clinics are also restricted in capacity. So um, as it stands, I suspect we'll actually, our, our own hospital will get the, the, the sort of backlog recovered at some point in the next six months, but I'm not sure other places will. Um, yeah, so that's going to be, a, I mean, that's a major challenge because the NHS, you know, is a, is a, is a national health service and, 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 and you know, it's, it's, it's very much run on a national level so with trying to have equity of care. Um, and I guess that's something that across all specialties they're having to deal with. And so it's going to be just a logistical nightmare. That's a really great, uh, great point. Romain, how are things in, in Italy? Are you digging out? Are you currently uh, busy up to full capacity or where are you at on things? So in Paris is quite similar to what has been said. So uh, basically I think we are around 80% of our, our activity and this, this is due to the distancing because you, you want to have no waiting time, that waiting time at all for the patient. Uh, you have to decrease the capacities everywhere. We reorganize many things to be able to, not to decrease to half, but just to 80%. Uh, and of course, uh, there is, uh, it's more important for us to treat all the emergencies, anything that could not wait. And the waiting time for things that are not emergency is increasing with, with time. Um, we don't have, we don't have any more um, significant number of patients not coming to the clinic. Uh, and even during the, um, the worst time when it was important for the patients to come, we had a plan to call each of them, first the secretary call, and if they, the patient uh, refused or said, I need more information, doctors call too, because the doctor usually is a little bit more convincing to explain why it's important for the patient to come. So we tried at least to be sure that nobody is going to lose vision during the, this situation. For things that are not emergency, Many people we openly say, you have a cataract. Yes, we can do it. We have some capacity to do it, but it's not at all emergency. If you think it can, it can wait, let's wait for la next year. So this way, I think 20% of the activity has been uh, decreased. So it has been saved for next year. 
Okay. And will that put an undue burden on the health system in France? Or do you feel like that's something that you have the capacity to dig out of within the next six to 12 months? I think it puts some, some burden uh, on, on the system and we will feel it more next year because all these patients, we say you have to wait for next year for this. So we will have to treat them and there will be new patients. It will take years before it's fully absorbed. Uh, but again, it's very important for us to be sure that patient will not lose vision due to this. If it's just some waiting time and it's acceptable by the patient, we, we can wait. But even for cataract, there are patients that cannot wait. They have one eye, their vision has decreased, they cannot work, so it's important to, to take care of them. And Ramin, are you delaying any retina surgeries at this point? Or are you able to do all of your retina surgeries? Uh, right now, I would say we do all the retina surgeries. We, we don't delay. Yeah, I think we do everything. I was just thinking if there is a situation we can wait for one year, but for retina, it's not usual that if there is anything, can wait so long. So no limitation on epiretinal membranes or macular holes? No, we, we, we do. We do. Okay, fantastic. Well, the real goal of this, uh, of this podcast is really going to be looking at telemedicine. So I want to get into the telemedicine side of things. And we have a really unique aspect here today because we have people who are kind of figuring out telemedicine, people who are kind of midway through telemedicine, and then people who have done uh, a fair amount of telemedicine remain for uh, almost more than a decade. So Francesco, I will start out with you. Uh, tell me about your experience right now with telemedicine. Yes, unfortunately, we are uh, very primitive in the, our telemedicine approach. And this is due to the, uh, of course, uh, lack of uh, hardware, lack of uh, connections. Uh, the national system in Italy uh, has a burden of debt and, uh, uh, you know, telemedicine was perceived as being a luxury. And this was true till, uh, <laughs> till before the COVID era. Uh, now, of course, there is a different awareness. But at present, still, we are at that stage. So what we uh, can say about telemedicine in, uh, in our, at least in my hospital, is that we started uh, uh, utilizing uh, telephone calls of course, to assume patient uh, that uh, miss vision, uh, visit in order to, 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 to understand whether this was due to the patient uh, uh, perceived uh, difficulty in, in coming or uh, because of any other reason. And uh, as Ramin said, initially this uh, approach was uh, uh, done by nurses uh, or by administrative clerk uh, and in uh, more difficult cases uh, uh, or cases where we really perceived there was a necessity for the patient to be seen soon uh, a doctor, uh, usually a resident, uh, uh, try to convince the patient to come over. Uh, apart from that, we also uh, shared uh, uh, few examinations, mainly OCTs, of course, with the, uh, say, peripheral doctors, uh, spokes uh, uh, doctors, uh, who shared with, the, uh, with our clinic uh, the images uh, and the patient cases. And we discussed with them uh, the uh, urgency or the uh, possible, uh, possibility of delaying uh, seeing uh, or treating uh, this patient. Uh, and this was done by texting, uh, so very, again, very primitive, unfortunately. 
Now I think that there, is a, there will be a massive inflow of uh, funds, of course, by the national system because uh, the, the new, say, the new medicine approach uh, uh, needs, uh, needs definitely telemedicine, at least for some patients. I wouldn't say this uh, as, I mean, say, you know, sometimes, uh, most of the times, uh, patients still need uh, the doctor uh, contact. And uh, uh, also our decision, uh, and this is my, my perception, but I think that my decision uh, would be different uh, if I was in front uh, of the real patient uh, and if all the investigation and the relatives uh, around to discuss the patient management. And, and go in a little more depth in that, Francesco. How do you feel like you would change things if you're not in person with the patient? Are you less likely to treat that patient because they're not there? Uh, what, what would you do differently via telemedicine as far as your approach to the patient? But as I said, I don't think that is just uh, uh, a one-way uh, change in, uh, in the attitude. I think that discussing with the patient sometimes uh, make you treat the patient you might have decided otherwise uh, and the opposite. So it's really the interaction uh, with the patient, uh, his examination, uh, the biomicroscopic appearance, which is undoubtedly different from, uh, from all the OCTs or, or investigation and also the relatives, uh, and sometimes made me change the, my attitude. I, I understood this uh, already uh, in the past. When I was looking at the patient notes, I, I decided for some approach, surgical or uh, treatment approach, uh, and, but I changed my mind when I was in front of the patient. I was surprised by that. So I don't think really uh, telemedicine uh, can substitute. You know, Francesco, that's a really astute point I never had thought of. It's really about that emotional intelligence and uh, feeling that patient's body language, their reaction to your discussing the condition, the treatment options that tells you so much. You know, you can see a patient, you say, you're going to need an injection in the eye and you can almost feel them retract and you think, okay, I need to overcome this obstacle, the fear of injection. And I do agree, you lose some of that. You lose seeing the patient's family out of the corner of your eye and how they are responding to what you're saying, um, either in a supportive or a, a questioning fashion. So that's really, really key and insightful that telemedicine cannot transmit many of those things. David, you are kind of midway through the telemedicine. You guys do some telemedicine screening for diabetes and diabetic retinopathy. You're using some telemedicine, but have found some obstacles. Tell us how you are utilizing it. Yeah, just to, just to pick up just briefly on what, what Francesco was saying, and I completely agree. I mean, so the UK, you know, has had a drive for things like diabetic retinopathy screening and follow up of patients with diabetic retinopathy for a long time because basically we haven't got enough eye doctors to actually to, to, to actually see the patients. And it is interesting. So if you ask a patient, you know, and the drive has been basically to make sure that the, the doctors are seeing appropriate patients, they're not seeing patients they don't need to see. But if you ask a patient who, what do they want to do? They want to see an expert. They want to see an expert in their, their subject, even if they haven't got anything which is sight threatening. They want to know what really is. And so there's this clash between, you know, what we need um, for terms of health service provision. And of course, this is relevant in terms of COVID, you know, patients still, um, some of them will want to still come and, and so on, and, and some of them won't want to have telemedicine. 
Um, and also the surgery in particular, you know, if you're going to operate on somebody's eye, even more than intravitreal injections, they've got, to, they've got to trust you and they've got to, they've got to, they've got to know that you're going to do a good job. And, 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 and I'm telling this, and that's really difficult to come across. Um, yeah, so sorry, that was just that's a pick no, up. Very <laughs> accurate as far as that goes. So how are you guys adopting telemedicine yeah. and what have been some of your obstacles? Yeah, so um, so we've had um, so for for a long time uh, set up our program twenty one years ago for diabetic retinopathy screening. But what we've done basically with the COVID pandemic is decided to extend that in a, in a very major way. So we've already had a thing called digital surveillance for a while, where we follow up people with with more than referable retinopathy, but less than treatable. And now we've decided to put everybody who isn't needing active treatment into the into the follow up system. So loads of people who've had treatment. Loads of people who are who have got maculopathy that but they're below treatment thresholds, and we follow them up now on short intervals <laughs> in the community with OCT and and wide field photography, um, and then we have a team of graders who aren't ophthalmologists who grade those images and only but they, and they only send in the ones that need treatment. But that very that that team is very closely linked in with the ophthalmology team. So um, and I'm the so myself and my colleague Mr. Majid Habib are the are the local leads, and we um. We, we were very linked in with that. Um, uh, so, you know, so that's to try and reduce people's exposure and only make them come to the hospital when they need it. So that's established and, and, and now expanding um, and, and, and fulfilling that role. We, we just, to, again, to pick up on something we, we mentioned before, um, we've, we do a treat and extend injection program. So we did consider using um, telemedicine for, for injection patients, but basically we always inject when we see based on treat and extend. We've had an OCT virtual service for a while where people who don't, who have post-injection in the post-injection phase being followed up can get OCTs virtually. And we still do that. I mean, one of the problems of course is with, you know, if you contrast us to dermatologists where they can take a picture, we need actually, we need a fundal picture or, or an OCT. And, you, and you, you know, the, the technology is more exotic and, and, and although it's expanding into optometry services in the UK, it's not readily accessible. And the, and the systems, as Francesca said, are, aren't linked. And um, so our diabetic retinopathy system is completely linked into the hospital, but the optometrist systems aren't. Um, so um, and when we, and we do do one other thing, which I think is, is, is good. So we, we, anybody with what we call acute maculopathy, which could be range, you know, it's typically wet A and D, it could be a macular hole, could be macular pucker, could be a retinal vein occlusion, et cetera, et cetera. We, we have a virtual assessment where we get them up, image them, check their vision. And then we, um, then we phone them with the results of the imaging and discuss it. And that way we can prioritize patients into, um, you know, um, so we can actually get a lot, large number photographed phone them but actually only see a lesser number in the flesh to reduce reduce because we've got less appointments and that's mm -hmm. working really well gotcha and back to the diabetic screening as far as that goes your diabetic follow-up it sounds like you've had a real influx in patients now that you're actually judging some of those treatment patients um that have to come in how important is ultra wide field photography for following our diabetics yeah i mean so so what i what i i kind of lied basically we <laughs> we do we do fields we do we do fields in the periphery but we don't have wide field cameras and screening we've got wide field cameras in the hospital and um you know it's a really important topic because uh, myself and colleagues have published on wide field photography versus 
um, local photography for picking up new vessels. And, um, and there's a big study just finished in the UK led by Naomi Lewis called the Emerald Study, just in, in the process of revisions in ophthalmology, which is looking at the follow-up of treated patients with wide field photography. And, and basically that is cost effective. And, and I'm sure in the UK that will come in in a major way. Again, whether the patients want that, I, I'm not sure, but it's a, uh, the UK aside from COVID, we already had a big capacity problem and now we've got an even bigger capacity problem. So it's not, you know, I'd love to say it was a choice, um, but it, it's not, you know, we, we're gonna have to go to those measures. And how do you communicate with those patients when you're reviewing their images? Do they get a letter? Does someone call them? So for, for a lot of the diabetic retinopathy stuff, it's a letter, which is not ideal. Um, for the for the, the acute macular patients I, re, I referred to, we, we phone them and speak to them in person because usually that's a new diagnosis. It's obviously quite a complex thing. Um, and you're speaking about, sometimes you're saying, okay, look, we're not going to see you, but we're going to re-image you in a certain number of time. And you, you have to have, you know, discussion regarding that. But actually, interestingly, the, the diabetic retinopathy stuff works quite well with letters, um, I guess, because they've often been in the system for a long time. We also have the staff are very trained in terms of look, you wrote, you know, reassuring them that they don't need treatment. And so they are seen in person when they have their pictures taken. And unlike a lot of places, we actually do live grading and a lot of the time, not, all, not for all cases, some cases they, they won't be sure what to tell the patient, but a lot of the time they're live graded. So the patients will be told that they're okay in person, which is it's much more acceptable, I think. So your graders are right there on site where the patient's having the photography done. That's interesting. So they can come out and say, here's what's going on. Yeah, not all the time because, you know, some grading need more time and more experience, but, but a lot of the patients, yeah. yeah. How long did it take you to get your graders up to speed? Is that an intensive program? Do, what kind of qualifications do they need? Yeah, so that's a, a long story, but it, but effectively in the UK now it's quite structured. There's a there's a there's a series of qualifications from the most basic sort of photography skills up to grading skills, into advanced grading skills with OCT, um, and there's a there's a series of qualifications the, the the team can get, and they progress through various layers. And for the very advanced graders, they also have to have a very rigid quality assurance scheme where they effectively they have to do parallel clinics. Um, to actually uh, to, to make the quality assurance meaningful in, in our system, at least for these for this advanced people who've been treated um, grading, um, and I'm I'm pretty confident we've got a lot of very experienced graders, um, so it's a big structure. So when somebody completely new comes in, they work their way through the series, and, and you know, to to get them to be an advanced grader will take you know several years, a, a long time, um, um, but it's quite a, a, an organised structure. And, and that's taken a, a long time to reach the point that it is in the UK, um, which is interesting in terms of uh, AI, which, um, which I know Raman's got some experience of. We, we, the, the National Screening Programme in the UK is considering AI, but because it's a national screening programme, we can't institute it locally until it's accepted nationally. Um, that's quite interesting and a great segue. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I mean, tell us about AI and grading of diabetic retinopathy in Fundus Photos. So, um, inspired by the British experience on the screening of diabetic retinopathy. Years ago, my former chief of department began a screening program in France because basically two thirds of the patient never uh, go to the ophthalmologist. They didn't have access for any reason because it's what difficult and so on. So, so we had for more than a decade, a, a huge database of images 
well graded twice by people who are checked for the quality and so on. So, and uh, later on, our problem was to find grader because for um, legal reasons in France, it has to be done by an ophthalmologist. We can't train someone else to do it. And it's very difficult to find ophthalmologists doing this. So years ago, again, in the department, even before uh, I became the chief of the department, there was a program to uh, try to find the AI system. And they had been uh, tentative with different technologies until these last uh, neuronal networks came out. And this one was very effective. And it happens that it's as effective as greater to, to make screening for most of the cases. So uh, this has been developed. Now it is a CMARC OFTI system, which is based on this, uh, on this and is available for, for European right now. And in a few seconds, it makes this screening and we have checked several times that, that it, it's working well. So it solved the other piece of the puzzle, which is who is going to grade it. So of course, it has to be tested in different settings because any aspect change. And I find in telemedicine, because this is not our only telemedicine program, we have a few ones uh, that we begin one of them five years ago. Uh, when I become chief of department for other diseases. So we are very conscious that we have to make the life easy for the patient. But what I learned very quickly is that this is very different for tech development. Tech people develop gadgets that work somehow and then they improve it with time because we use it and they improve the tech. In medicine, you can't come with something say, oh, it works uh, so and so and we are going to improve it if there is time later on. So you have to be sure that it's secure and any small aspects from the network, the quality of the imaging, the doctors, the patient being here or not, the selection of patient, everything has an influence. And recently we did something about this in one of our clinics, which is we basically make the images with the patient, we had the patient in front of us, and a few weeks ago a, later, we asked the same doctor to review the file he, he didn't remember exactly which patient was. It was mixed and make an assessment what they want to do with this patient. Very simple question, treat and extend. Increase by two weeks or decrease by two weeks. And we find in one third of the cases, there was differences between uh, the real and the, this semi-virtual things. And um, so it, it's very complex. And myself, uh, we have something similar to what David said that we begin after the pandemic basically, which is, the imaging clinic plus teleconsultation. The patient comes, have images immediately with no waiting time, go home, I call them and say, I am in the, the file and the images in front of me. Selected patient, not everyone going this. And still I find it very challenging, very difficult to solve the problem on phone compared to having the patient in front or asking from one extra imaging because I want something precise. And in many cases you have to say, okay, at the end, please come back because it's too complex. So telemedicine is not just a technology problem. We have to solve all the problem around, test it, be sure that it's working. It's like the, the vaccine issues. Everyone wants a vaccine, but you can't go quickly. You, this is a, a human health is important thing. So we have to be careful. Very insightful. So you said a third of the time doctors would disagree when they were looking at the images virtually. What are some of the common causes of that disagreement? Is it, is it not being able to get additional studies or, or what sorts of things lead to that disagreement? So honestly, we are looking to this right now. So I don't have the, uh, the final result of this, but looking to them, basically my feeling was that 
what they decided just based on imaging was the right decision. But what decided with the patient is the pragmatic decision. That's so, a really amazing. So you think there may be some influence from the patient that affects the doctor and makes them choose something that may not be the best thing for the patient. I, I, I do think usually you don't put the patient in danger. That's not the issue, but um, I, I, one example. So the patient, you think you can increase by two weeks the interval, which is good for the patient because they have a larger interval between injection. And for any reason, the patient at the time you want to have the injection cannot come another medical consultation or holiday, whatever important commitment. And you just adapt, say, okay, we'll try this next time. So no safety issues here, but you just adapt to real life of the patient. Okay. Basically, we, we try this. When you, you adapt to the real life of the patient, you improve the result because you, you have to be adapted and be pragmatic. So this is still uh, something that we have to solve in telemedicine. So I mean, you've got so much experience with telemedicine. How are you using it in, in the view of COVID? Um, so basically, we, uh, we increase some of these programs, uh, but under control. So some of them, for example, for this imaging and teleconsultation later on, instead of putting just technician doing the images, we put a resident uh, who have some experience saying that if you see something really awkward, just let us know and we will take. Uh, so this is extra security issues by the time. But we use it to, to evaluate to see if we can go further with more and less success. Sometimes it's so difficult to have doctors and patients be used to such a system. They don't really understand why I am not, for example, what I said, the, the doctor will call you. So why the doctor is not here? So I want to see him right now. Why he's going to call me? So of course they prefer that you do everything just for one of them, but we are conscious that we have hundreds of them to see in the same day and we find here again, a pragmatic decision between what we can offer to each of them and how we can treat all of them. That's very interesting. Are there barriers to communication when you call an older patient? A lot of them. I mean, so some of them just don't answer the, the, the phone when you are supposed to, to do it and you have to call them later. Some of them have hearing issues. I mean, it's quite common to have a Presbyacusi too with, with, with AMD and they have hearing issues. So we have really to select patient for this. So it's not always easy. And they don't understand, they don't, not all of them like this. We make a survey about the virtual clinic. Basically uh, we say to the patient, do you want to see the, the doctor? Would you accept to see the doctor, not to see the doctor by having a more speedy process? You don't wait at all. So one third of the patient, they say, I don't mind. As far as it's quick, I prefer not to see the doctor. It's not an issue. One third say, I want to see the patient, the doctor all the time. And one third uh, preferred the option in which they see the doctor time by time. And actually that's my preferred one is that you don't see the doctor for three times and the fourth time you see the doctor to have a communication. Someone at some point should check that everything is okay. Otherwise, the system could become crazy. Absolutely. It's, it's really interesting, actually, John, you know, because this, sort of, this sort of relationship thing is really interesting because it's the same with friends. So it's been shown that basically 
So once you, it's the same with, and you'll notice it with teleconferences. If you know people in a teleconference, I've met you all, all, all you, you three guys. If we haven't met before, the relationship would be totally different. And it's the same with patients. If you, if you, once you've met them, you have a very different relationship. But to maintain that, you have to see them occasionally. So to come back to the point, you can miss a couple of ones, tell you, and you're on the phone, it'll be great. But if you miss them for more than a year, you'd probably be back to almost square one. The trust won't be there. And medicine's an art, isn't it? It's not a science. And um, it's totally different from tech. It's an art. And it's just very nicely. John, sorry to interrupt you. I just uh, uh, came to my mind that one of the main issues in, uh, in uh, interacting with old people is that sometimes they deny having been called, they deny having been uh, uh, in favor of some treatment or investigation. So it's, it raises also a, a medical legal issue because, uh, uh, you know, these people, I mean, it, it occurs to, I think, to any of us that uh, even if we discuss with the patient, explain, uh, have them sign in front of you, the consent, sometimes they deny uh, at least having understood uh, correctly what has been uh, said. So I think that uh, with this, uh, uh, say, more uh, different way of uh, communicating, uh, this also might be a, a, a problem, at least uh, in, in our country. You're absolutely right, Francesco. Do you think that not seeing patients in person could lead to increased physician burnout? I mean, you lose some of the, do you lose some of the joy when you interact with patients like this versus seeing them in person? I think definitely yes. And uh, also I wanted to, to say something uh, uh, about what, uh, what Ramin said, you know, about the agreement among colleagues. Sometimes when I visit, I have uh, some other, either resident or another, another uh, colleague with me, and we discuss and we interact. And I wouldn't say most of the time, but sometimes we are not in agreement. So I don't think that the agreement uh, is between the machine or the, the, the investigation and the decision. I think that the agreement is uh, between or among doctors. So, uh, you know, a joy of uh, seeing patients, discussing uh, cases, uh, uh, you know, we used to say a couple of brain is better than one. Uh, and I think this is really the case also uh, when it deals with, uh, with the, the joy, with the enjoyment we all, all of us uh, uh, experience when we are in contact with our patients. So Francesco, with that in mind, do you think that telemedicine is something that is going to survive and thrive post-COVID? Or do you think once COVID is over, we go back to our normal standards? I think that some, some of it will stay, definitely yes. Um, to be honest, uh, uh, I don't think that, uh, I mean, the, you know, the acute maculopathy as David uh, name, uh, those will uh, stay as telemedicine cases. Uh, I think they will, uh, uh, they will come to our casualty department. So I don't think that for that side, uh, uh, telemedicine will survive, but definitely for the screening and uh, for follow-up of diabetics, more, say more chronic cases, also glaucoma cases, um, part of it will, uh, will stay. Still, we have to in improve something. I don't think that uh, 
still we have uh, uh, accurate home testing uh, or uh, cameras because uh, I mean uh, definitely even in the with this telemedicine approach some uh, someone should take pictures of the wide uh, wide uh, wide angle photos uh, uh, images or OCTs there is a person in front of the patient so what I really think telemedicine should do is uh, to uh, to to, uh, to have a sort of two-way relationship, so the, the patient can uh, test visual acuity, can have the uh, pictures of the images uh, taken, and the doctors can see. Otherwise, there still will be a third party in 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 the in this uh, relationship. So again, uh, accurate home testing, uh, improved. Uh, cameras or uh, devices to acquire images uh, uh, and, and a good connectivity are, are the future, uh, if we want this uh, to be transferred also in the future. David, a similar question. Is this going to be something that COVID is a launching point for telemedicine? And if it is, as Francesco alluded to, what is it going to take for us to make that next step? Well, it may be. I think it needs integration of care, which is going to take a lot of resources. You know, the UK has been through this before with GPs. GPs are now integrated into care, but they weren't 10 years ago. And optometrists are now need to be integrated into care. And that's going to be, because they've all got different machines and different web access and so on. I think the other barrier, so that's one barrier. Um, you know, the other barrier is we, 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 we we haven't touched on is, is the time taken for these things. So in actual fact, telemedicine is not a time saver. Um, it actually takes more time because a patient, if they have the imaging, then they have to wait in at a certain time. We have to be available to call them at a certain time. Because as you say, if you call at a different time, they're often not in naturally because they're doing other things. And then you've got to spend the time speaking on the phone. You've got to document it very carefully as Francesco um, uh, pointed out, you know, for, for medical legal reasons. And then they still were the general feeling is that when you when you ask patients you know sometimes they will want telemedicine but sometimes they want to see a face they want to see a human so i think there may be components but there's a lot of barriers uh, and not least of which of course which we haven't talked about is funding telemedicine is not there's not a funding um, framework in the uk at least for this um, it's done for free essentially so uh, and that, that can't go on. <laughs> that, that's a huge point, David. And also in the United States, we have issues with that as well. The telemedicine screening images and the time taken are just trying to be, it's like a square peg trying to be pushed into a round hole. We need a unique carve out that allows it to be funded. It's particularly for some of the devices like the wide field cameras, home OCTs and things like that. Ramin, do you think this is the launch of the telemedicine era or do you think we're gonna pull back once COVID-19 is over? Uh, something in between. I think telemedicine uh, began before this COVID. Uh, everyone was sensitive to this. So we are in a Zoom webinar. It exists for uh, half a decade. Nobody used it. Now we use it. And once the COVID is finished, I'm sure we will continue to use it. Not instead of the Congress, because I want to see Francesco and David in, in real have a glass of, no, a coffee, <laughs> let's say this, <laughs> a coffee together. Uh, but still, sometimes if we can't see each other in the Congress, we will use this to, to have a quick interaction. So same for, for, for this. And 
Um, I think what David said, um, the funding issue is a very important issue in the two sides. Yeah, the first is how uh, the insurances and the payers will agree to pay for this. And of course, they will need new data to show that it's as effective, as good. And that, that's good. That, that's fair. So it will take time. So it's not like the COVID ended and we are going to do all the telemedicine stuff uh, immediately. It will take maybe a decade to have all the data. But at the same time, um, my concern or my thought is that at some point, many of the human interactions that we are talking about will be sacrificed. Because at some point, we will say to the patient, okay, uh, I understand that you're for screening of your diabetic retinopathy, you prefer to have Dr. X or Y or Z to see them because he, he or she very sympathetic and so on and so, but screening program by AI system half the price. So I just reimburse half this price and you pay for your extra yourself. And at this point, we may notice that one third of the patients have no issue. They say, I, I love David, I love Francesco, I'm going to pay the extra and I will see them. And some of the patients, because they cannot afford it or because they don't value it at this point, they will say, okay, Romain, no, he's not a very good guy. I'm okay not seeing him. He's not good looking enough and I'm okay to, to, to just have the telemedicine. So the funding, at the beginning could be an obstacle, and at the end could be the drive, the killer, who will say, okay, we go telemedicine, it's cheaper. If it's cheaper, we'll see, because David say, it's not obvious everywhere that it's going to be cheaper. Our ophthalmology devices are expensive. You can't have them everywhere, the best one. So uh, diabetic retinopathy is still, the screening is based on uh, last century technology, everywhere, because it's cheap. You have to see. You know, that's a great point, though, Ramin, that, that this could actually decrease our reimbursement. And I don't think we're actually yeah. thinking of that if they say, hey, look, more efficient. You're not seeing the patient in person, less time spent in your clinic. We're going to decrease the work-related value of what you do and pay you less to do the same amount of work, maybe even requiring more effort because talking to a patient over a teleconference or on the phone is much more difficult yeah. than in person. I, I agree. Last question as we wrap up here. This has been fantastic. I appreciate so many diverse opinions and so much wise insight. I mean, what are we going to need from industry to help us with telemedicine? Basically, to, to be able to uh, run, fund, and help us running and funding uh, clinical research showing the benefit in every aspect. I think we have to work all together, not industry alone, not us alone, not the funding or government alone. Work together with no prerequisite, with no prejudice. We just see what's useful, we take it. What's too expensive or not useful, we just accept the stuff. We have to work together. And David, how do we get different countries, European Union, United States, you know, the UK to all kind of come together to adapt a, a similar protocol? Can we do that or is that an, an just an immense obstacle. Yeah, so, well, I was just thinking when Ramon was speaking there, the, the complexity of the trials that we're going to need to actually to, to, to answer the questions he's just posed is it's complex. Um, but, um, you know, and obviously the funding um, structure in every country is so different and it's totally different between our four countries. Um, but the, the, the questions are probably similar. Um, so it should be possible, but it will take um, some careful planning. Um, and it is in 
the interests of industry. Obviously, they 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 have they have um, therapies that work and that they want us to use and we want to use. So yeah, we, it should definitely be a partnership to um, to do the trials together. Definitely, yeah, challenging. But. And Francesco, I'm going to change it up a little bit at, for the last question with you. Italy has come through the storm of COVID and done really well. We are currently in the States, just in the midst of things. We have 40 to 50,000 new cases a day and unfortunately are leading the world in number of COVID cases. And we're seeing a recurrence in UK, a recurrence in France. What advice do you have as someone from Italy who has weathered this and done rather well to us coming through this and getting back to a more normal life? Well, it's very difficult because, of course, there is there, there are there are differences in, uh, in uh, among the countries. Uh, I think that most of the cases uh, uh, in Italy and the cluster of cases in northern Italy was due to the crowding of people. I mean, the uh, big uh, industrial uh, cities like Milan, Bergamo, Brescia, where all uh, most of the uh, industries in Italy are. Uh, together with the, the public transport, because I think that, uh, I mean, the metro and all the crowding within those uh, means of transportation made a really different. So it's very difficult, for example, for a city like New York City to move uh, uh, otherwise utilizing uh, um, uh, cars like uh, we do routinely or with motorbike because of weather, because of uh, uh, the difficulties in the, in the, and the differences in the, in, the, in the attitudes. And these are very difficult to uh, suggest and to give because, uh, again, there are diff different uh, structures of the, of the cities, of the country. But I think that uh, what really made a difference in Italy was the uh, lockdown period, and uh, which uh, created an awareness uh, that social distancing uh, and use of masks were, was really, and possibly gloves, was really uh, something necessary. So I think this is something uh, uh, that, that anywhere could be done and could be, could be uh, improved. Fantastic. That's great advice and, and gives us hope that if we can do the right thing, we can come through this. I want to thank all the panelists, uh, Francesco, Ramin, David, you guys have been wonderful. I need to update. Uh, Francesco is actually a professor of ophthalmology at the University of Bari, one of my favorite places that I've been. I was at a meeting there a couple years ago, Francesco, and it was fantastic. Uh, thank you all for joining us for this episode of New Retina Radio COVID-19 Back to Practice focusing on telemedicine. I'm John Kitchens from Retina Associates of Kentucky, and tune in the next few weeks for our next episode. Thank you. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan and Novartis. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. 
BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.